Good morning. I, uh, I really, really appreciate um, the worship time today, the songs. Of course, the worship is not finished, but uh, wow. Uh, one of my favorite, probably my favorite song of the last year, year and a half, uh, we sung this morning. Uh, some of the best times in my life over the last year and a half have been sparked by one of the songs we sang. So you can figure out which one that is. Uh, you take a guess, not that important. They were all great songs, but uh, just really good. I like uh, when we have song services like that, as I've said before. That way, if I'm a total flop, it was still great to come to the Lord's house, and so it takes the pressure off of me, so really, really appreciate that. Matthew 5, let's go there. Matthew 5, we're starting a new section in the book of Matthew. This is um, affectionately called, but though it is kind of black and white, it's a little bland of a title. Uh, but it's affectionately called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to kind of kick that off this morning. We'll be here literally, not to scare you. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for months. For real. We're going to be there for months. As you'll see by the, uh, if you got your hand out, you already see how much we're tackling today. So you can kind of prorate that out. Doesn't mean we're going to always do three verses. But I thought since we're starting that it'd be good it covers three chapters. If we just go ahead and read all three chapters, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to try to read three chapters. I'd never get through that. Uh, I'd have so many comments I'd be making along the way. But I do want to read the first 12 verses. Uh, so that's a little beyond what we are looking at this morning. I really thought we were going to be going through verses 1 through 4 today, but that just uh, wasn't going to happen. That's all right. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to read the text, verses 1 through 12. These are called by most people the Beatitudes, from a Latin word I believe it is, for happy or blessed. And so that's why that section's called the Beatitudes. And then eventually we'll get to all these others, but today I want to read these 12. And if you were here last week, then you already know what verse number 1 means because Jesus ministered through Galilee, and he was healing. Watch my motions. So he was healing, he was teaching, and he was preaching. And as a result of that, all three of these, probably mostly because of the healing, but also because of the teaching that was so unique, and the preaching, there's huge crowds of people following Jesus around. And then that idea of these crowds, I mean, massive numbers. We know eventually as we get into the book of Matthew, he's going to feed 5,000 males. Uh, so you can kind of prorate out, add in the females and some children. And we're probably talking about thousands of people when we get to verse 1 of chapter 5. So if you would read this with me, what I want to do is read the text. I'm going to give a lengthy introduction, kind of an overview, brief, just hitting some points of the overview of the Sermon on the Mount and a quick word about the Beatitudes. And then we'll get into verses, really verse 3 today. So verse 1. Seeing the crowds, so picture that, huge numbers. He, Jesus, went up on a mountain. So picture it. He's in Galilee. We don't know what mountain it is. Doesn't distinguish it. He sees the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down. So I'm not going into a lot of the details that I've read this week, but when a rabbi, a great teacher of the day, is on the move, anything he's saying is important, but when he sits down, that's his official teaching time, this is like of utmost importance, and so Jesus is taking an official teaching stance, everybody would recognize it, and the Bible says 
his disciples came to him. We know that Peter and Andrew, James and John, were just added to the Lord's list of disciples there in the previous chapter, in the middle of it. And, but this is more than them. I don't think this is the whole crowd. And Matthew is not addicted to a chronological order. So I'm quite certain that more of the 12 are already there. I don't know if all of them were there or not. But this is not just limited to the 12, though. It's going to be those that are going to do more than following for a healing, more than following uh, for what's he going to say, shock value. These are people that, hey, I'm giving him my life. I'm going to follow this man's teaching. I think he's the Christ. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and these are the Beatitudes. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is, notice, kind of goes back and forth on some verb tenses, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we're going to see some shall in the future, but verse 3 and uh, verse 10 are going to use the present tense. So verse 3 again, blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's a real kingdom. There's a real kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of God. This is a real thing, and Jesus says these are the ones that's going to belong to. This is the, it's theirs. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, weep, sorrow, cry. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Oh, yeah, right, the weak, the doormat people. Good to have them around. They make us feel good. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are they blessed? For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice, listen, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little. These are not the peacekeepers. These are not the ones who, you know, get along. Don't, don't make any ripples. Lay low. Blessed are those who are just kind of quiet. Don't ever voice their opinion. No, no, no. This is almost the opposite of that, really. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they should be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. A lot of that's going on around the world. It's rising. You've been hearing about it. It's coming. I saw an article this week. Christianity is the number one most, by, by a, a unbiased research, it's the number one most persecuted group in the world right now. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he makes it very pointed to his group on this day. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What should we do? Rejoice and be glad? Why? We're being persecuted. Why would we rejoice and be glad? For your reward is great in heaven. Second reason, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's take a little overview. Just hit some things kind of quickly. I don't want to dive into these, but I do want to throw them out. There's a little bit of disagreement among some very good teachers 
And I'm not going into all the minutia of it. Some very good teachers disagree on, is this one sermon? We know this is chapter 5, 6, 7, the, verse, the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of people believe this is one sermon, one occasion. Some believe it's kind of one sermon over a little bit of time. Others go to Luke and other places, and they, they make an argument, a decent case. Jeff, where do you fall? I don't know. I don't want to fall on one. I've kind of always seen, looked at it as one sermon. I will say, if this is one sermon, you maybe have heard a sermon before where you thought, man, there was so much in that. I don't even know. I could digest it all. I'm just going to try to take a thought. Yeah, read this. This is what you call a fire hydrant. You ever taken a sip from a fire hydrant? You don't do that. Hey, open that baby up. I'm a little thirsty. I need a sip. You don't take a sip from a fire hydrant. It'll blow you away. If this is one sermon, this is a fire hydrant. I'm going to spend my message on verse 3. He's got three chapters. Boom, 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 boom. Pow, pow, pow. Second thing we're not real sure about, who is the audience? Is it these crowds that are at the end of chapter 4, these massive crowds, is Jesus just declaring to the crowds? Look at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the, the debate is, is, his, is the Sermon on the Mount to the crowds, or is it to this smaller group of giving their life sacrificial followers of his? Is that his main audience? I'm going to offer to you a blend. Because, look, if you've got your Bible open, I would encourage you to have it open here in front of you. Flip over to the end of chapter 7. Kind of Matthew's going to give a commentary to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verse number 28, Matthew 7, look at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So, Jeff, is this to the crowds? Is this a message to disciples, close followers, smaller group? Well, I know this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. Not as their scribes. Jesus doesn't get up and say, I'm going to quote that rabbi and that rabbi and that famous teacher, and I'm going to pull from this person. He quotes the Old Testament, but by and large, Jesus is giving new material, new way of looking at things, and he's not saying, I'm getting my authority from other people. And this just blows the crowd away. I'm going to offer, this is where I'm at right now, I believe Jesus' message is to his disciples, and the crowds are listening on, and they're blown away by what he's saying to those who are the close followers. If I could say it this way, it's almost like me on Sunday mornings preaching to believers and unbelievers, non-Christians who are always welcome to attend or watch, however the Lord leads you to do that. We'd love you to come here. But if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're very welcome to listen to what I'm saying to God's people. Probably 80 to 90% of what I say each week is to Christians. And I also have some things to say to non-believers. But even that which is said to Christians, non-believers may go, do they really, is this what's really going on here? A big difference is I don't speak on my own authority, never do. My only authority is when I'm attaching my message to the Bible. Jesus, he's just preaching on his own authority. So, a couple more things by way of introduction. I want to encourage you to avoid, there's more than these, but two common errors that teachers have looked at this for hundreds of years and they've had disagreement. I'm going to give you two wrong ways of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one. Some incorrectly believe, catch this, it's important. They incorrectly believe that what Jesus is teaching 
is really wetting our appetite for the future millennial kingdom. And this is what life is going to be like when we get to the kingdom of God. He's, he's, he's telling us, he's kind of building anticipation. This is how great it's going to be when everybody lives like this. That's not what he's doing. Okay, he's not doing that. Now listen, there is a yet future, very visible consummation. I mean, we're in it. Jesus is in Jerusalem. His people are ruling and reigning around the world. Everything's being done the way he wants it done. The curse on the planet, the curse of sin is lifted. People aren't dying anymore. That is really coming. But there is a sense, you've got to get this. We'll go into it later. There's a sense that the kingdom of God is already occurring in the hearts of believers right now. So don't read the Sermon on the Mount and think Jesus is just kind of telling us what's going to happen later down the road. doesn't really apply today. Don't read it that way. Here's a second error. I want to be careful. I'm not going to be quite as strong on this. Here's how some people view the Sermon on the Mount. Watch. Genesis, you got this introduction to history. Got these four great events, four great people. And then you get to Exodus, and you have God bringing this chosen nation of Israel out of Egypt. And the lawman, watch, Moses goes up on a mountain and receives the law of God. And he comes down and gives us these commandments. And these commandments are such that we cannot keep them. And they show us that we're lost and we need a Savior. Here's some people's view of the Sermon on the Mount. Old Testament kicks off with some unkeepable law. So Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of Moses. He goes up on a mountain and he gives a law, except Jesus' law is even harder to keep because he goes to the very heart of the matter, not just our externals but our internals. And boy, if we couldn't keep the externals, how are we going to keep the externals and the internals? We really need a Savior. Is that what Jesus is doing? I will say this. It accomplishes that goal the internal nature of the Sermon on the Mount accomplishes the goal that we will never be able to do this on our own. It does do that, but that's not what... Christ is not the New Testament Moses going up on a mountain and giving a law. That is not it. So if I haven't made it clear, here's what I want to make clear, okay? The Old Testament law already gets us lost, and so Jesus is not giving us something new that's going like, to get us more lost and more in need of a Savior what he's given is his expectation for people that will follow him, his true followers. He's talking to Christians today. So as we read this, I want you all through these, these three chapters, be reading this as God talking to you today. Read it that way. Don't look at it as, boy, it's future, or it's just serving to get us lost. We're never going to be able to do these things. That would be a wrong view. Now, a while ago, I jokingly said, I think we'll just read through three chapters. Um, so I'm reading a couple of commentaries the other day, and they keep alluding to how Jesus' message is countercultural. Countercultural. And so that's the next thought. So I thought, well, I'm just going to take a brief, Jeff, don't get bogged down. You've got to get this message finished. I'm going to do a brief reading of these three chapters and kind of see is there evidence in this message where Jesus' message, his teaching, is countercultural against what we see around us today. Is there evidence that God's value system is basically the opposite, very different, of our value system, our natural value system? Absolutely. I want to challenge you, maybe before next Sunday, take some time, just you know, breeze through, glance over very briefly, and you will find the following. I'm going to give highlights. By the way, 
so I can fit all my notes on four pages. This is where I deleted the most. I'm like, ah, I got to cut that out, that out. I'm going to give you 11 ways in three chapters that Jesus' message is counter to today's culture, contrast today's culture. Catch it, okay? Don't have time to read it now. I'm going to whet your appetite for what's coming. Our culture says one thing. Jesus says the following. I'm going to give you 11. Here we go. You ready? Jesus says the most blessed people are described by words like poor, mournful, meek, hungry, thirsty, persecuted. Yeah, that's not what we think is the blessed life. Here's another. God cares more about your thoughts than your actions. I am not saying God does not care about your actions. What I'm saying is God cares more about your internals than even your externals. And we live in a world that is consumed with the externals. The internals, ah, but if we can fake it on the outside, counterculture. Here's another. God, Jesus says, a pure heart is more valuable than your right eye or your right, right hand. You say, I've I got to have my right hand. That's my strong hand. I have to make a living. I have to see things. A pure heart. You say, I know a person, they have a heart of gold. Man, they have a pure heart. They don't have much else. And boy, they have a lot of physical maladies. They're the blessed people. Another. Now I'm going to get... Some of the things I'm going to finish with, I realize they're not going to stir up warm feelings toward me. All I'm going to say is, read the text. It's in there. Here's one. Counterculture. Most divorces and remarriages in America are adulterous. Most. I'm not going to say all. I'll bet you 90, high 90-some percent of divorces followed by remarriage are adulterous when compared to the book of Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19. If you got any questions, what does God say about that? You better read Matthew 5 and you really better read Matthew 19. Another, God does not only want you to not retaliate against your enemies, like, but I want to get them back. They did that, they said that, I'm going to say this. Don't retaliate, but more than that, Jesus says, I want you not only retaliate, I want you to forgive them from your heart but he's still not done I don't I not only want you to forgive them I want you to love them yeah I think this is talking about the millennial kingdom because I don't think we could do this now he's actually talking about this life I struggle with the first word of my next sentence well this one not this one but the one I'm getting ready to give Jesus says the following he's what he teaches counterculture much public prayer is just a show, and God's not listening. He said, what'd you struggle with? I'll go ahead and offer my opinion. I would say that most public prayer is for show. God's not listening. So can I interject? I'm not preaching on prayer. We did that in the fall, and eventually we'll get to that when we get to chapter 6. Listen, prayers are not speeches so sick of speeches Jeff's been guilty of using prayers for speeches prayers are not speeches Jeff don't preach on prayer we gotta get this other stuff All right, calm down 
Prayers are for praise and worship and adoring and confessing and giving thanks and pleading. It is not for talking to everybody out here and trying to make them think how spiritual you are. Look how good they prayed. Well, good. Mission accomplished. God wasn't listening. There's another one. Most Christians value money more than God. Just straight up. Our country is probably the worst in the history of the world. I am not saying that American Christians do not love God. We have a love for God, but we just love money more. And here's how you'll know. When it comes down, these two compete and collide. Uh-oh, I'm picking my money because I value my money. God will forgive. And I can do this now. I need this. Counterculture. Three or four more. It gets tougher when I finish. This one I'll offer. I don't understand this one yet. Kind of looking forward to studying this down the road. How you judge other people will affect how God judges you. I don't even know all that that means. I know that's going to happen. How you, so how's that counterculture? Cultural. Because we're real strict on other people, and we want everybody else to be real easy on us. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. When we read our texts, we read them with such nice tones, and this is what I really mean. But when I read yours, this is how you do it. I know that's what they... And when they try to explain, actually, I, I, I meant that if you were, well, still. <laughs> you, uh, that's how I took it, and so that's the way it is. Okay. How you judge other people is going to affect how God judges you. And then the last three are the toughest. I wish they weren't true. You read it and see if you don't come to this conclusion. The vast majority of Americans are headed for hell. Vast majority. If you work at a plant, if you work at a place where you're surrounded by, like I work in a Christian environment, I really believe that everybody that, that is employed here is a Christian. I'll see them in heaven. That's very unusual. Most of you work in places and go to school where the vast majority of them are headed for hell. Two more. Many, many people believe so, okay, Jeff, that's great. No, let me finish. Many people believe they are saved, and they're not. And that flows kind of to where his message ends. Many people mistake some Bible knowledge for spirituality and a relationship with God. They listen to some sermons. They know some facts. They go to church. They said a little prayer one time, and they mistake all of that for eternal life and a relationship with God, and they don't have it. I'm going to go back to the last one I just said. Many, many people really believe they are saved, and they're not, and they're here this morning. They are here this morning. They're sitting here right now. They believe. They really believe. They're on their way to heaven, and they are not, and they will not. Like, Jeff, why do you do that, man? Every now and then you say some things. You're just trying to stir up some doubt and get some little quick confessions and some professions of faith and drum up some baptism. I promise you I'm not. I wish I did not have to say that. I'm going by what Jesus says. Many, many people really believe they are saved and they're going to have a rude awakening. You're just trying to, to cause us and, and rock our faith. You tell me what I just said all day long. You'll never rock my faith. I know who I believe. You say, right, I, I know what I'm trusting. No, I know who I'm trusting. You cannot make me doubt my salvation. It's solid.
One or two more things by way of introduction. We'll get into verse 3 after that. Would you look at verse 20? Matthew chapter 5, verse number 20. This, by most people's account, most of the real intelligent theologians who are out there and have written, although I haven't run into that yet, but uh, I know from past listening and reading that most people would consider verse 20 of chapter 5 the key verse to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's at least look at it. Jesus says, for I, I really digest this, for I tell you, unless, this is Jesus, he makes the rules, this is strong, I tell you, and no doubt this is going to be one of the things that's going to slap the crowd in the face as he's talking to his disciples, and they're probably thinking, did he really, that's not what he meant, is it? Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a kingdom of heaven. It belongs to the poor in spirit and the persecuted. They will have it. You will not unless your righteousness exceeds that of the... Why is that such a problem? Because the scribes and the Pharisees had basically mastered the externals. I wrote down just a, th a few things. Check yourself. Check yourself with this. Listen. The Pharisees kept the Sabbath days, this day, now I know we set aside Sunday for the Lord, the Pharisees set aside the day of the week that was given to the Lord for rest, and I mean the Lord's day, the, to focus their attention on him, they set that aside, it was protected every week, without fail, they never missed it. How do you measure up? They never missed giving the Lord his day, never they were legalistic on it. Here's another. They were teachers of the Bible. Man, they wrote the Bible. They didn't write it. They copied, made copies of it so other people could have copies. They're, they're transcribing the scriptures. They're teaching it. Why? They study it daily. They study it daily. Deanna got up here and gave a plea to come out to tomorrow night's Bible study. If you've got time and you're just like, I don't think I really want to. I don't really read my Bible. She's going to teach us how to study the Bible. That's not really something I plan on doing in my future. Did you read verse 20? These people daily, man, they knew the facts. Man, they knew the stories backward. Here's another. They tithed of their income. They always tithe. And I don't mean the little game. Hey, here's this. Now, what about Uncle Sam's portion? Do I have to give all that? You play that little game all you want. These people didn't play games. If they had an herb garden, they took out of the herbs. They got down to the seeds. I mean, these people, by the book, beyond, to the details, they tithe. No questions asked. This is God's. They gave it to the Lord. Here's another. They fasted regularly. How you measuring up? They prayed, not like in the morning, not like in the evening. These guys had set aside times for prayers. There's 6,000 of them lived around in Israel back then, 6,000 Pharisees. How, how are you doing? Jesus says you had better have more righteousness than them. He is not saying you need to have as much righteousness as them. He's saying they don't have enough. You better have more than that. So if you're like me, you're probably already thinking, Jeff, how in the world are we able to do that? And that's kind of the point of today's message. So here's a little teaser for the message if you want to write this down. Not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but as we move forward, we're going to find, Liz, this is key. Jesus is going to teach us that true righteousness, you've got to have more than the Pharisees. I'm, I'm losing. 
True righteousness is the righteousness that must be given to you by God. That's how, how am I going to have more righteousness than the Pharisees? I don't have any. I can't measure up. Then you better have given to you God's righteousness as a gift. And then here's what I believe as I, going back to how I started this message, once Christ gives you his righteousness because of his death on the cross, you now have more righteousness than the Pharisees. But it doesn't stop there. That puts a new life in you. God literally gives you a new heart, a new core being, a new way of living, a new way of thinking. It's called repentance. And that core repentance, that new heart, listen, I believe this, starts leading to real, true righteousness coming out in the life, springing from this brand new heart. Now, here's where it starts. You have no righteousness. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Once I give you my righteousness, it's going to come out in you living more righteously than you could ever do on your own. That's the evidence. Now we have these Beatitudes and a quick word about them. And then we'll look at the first one this morning. Are the Beatitudes, here they are again, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, the persecuted. Listen, is this a to-do list to get eternal life? Is this something that if I can do these eight things, then I get salvation and I get to go to heaven? Listen, it is not a checklist. It is not a to-do list. Although, I want to be fair. I want to be honest. Verse 3 and verse 4 is part of you becoming a Christian. The other six are not something that you're going to be able to do before you become a Christian. Okay? So then what is going on here? Verse 3 and 4, this being poor in spirit and this mournful, as we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, those go into becoming a Christian. But once that's in place, then what is verse 3 all the way to verse 12? What's that really talking about? Here's what, here's what Jesus is teaching. This is the expected progression of a true believer's life in this life, not just later on in the millennial kingdom. It starts with being pure in spirit, and it also includes being mournful, and then that is going to lead you to salvation. That's going to be part of salvation. And then ultimately, these other six are things that you should see. You should expect this progression in your Christian life. So with that in mind, that's all we're going to take time for the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. And now, verse 3. So verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed. Verse 5, blessed. Verse 6, blessed. 7, blessed, 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 blessed. I see the word blessed. I just thought of a ridiculous, probably blasphemous. I'm not going to say Jesus is a southerner. Um, you know, anyway, that just popped in my head. Forget I said that. All right, bless. <laughs> blessed. What does that mean? What does this mean? Blessed are the pure in spirit. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, the pure in heart and the merciful and the pure in, uh, the, the, the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the persecuted. What's, what's blessed mean? This is key. The meaning of blessed. I want to propose to you the idea behind the word blessed. I'm going to give you three thoughts. Here we go. Number one, it means fortunate. Fortunate are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are those who mourn. 
but it's probably stronger than that, and so we're going to offer this next word. It means approved. If you want to follow along, kind of feel in as we go. Jesus is saying these are the fortunate people. These are the approved people. Lord, who do you approve of? I approve of the poor in spirit, those that mourn, those who are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are the kind of people that I approve of. But if you have different translations, you've probably seen the next word used. It doesn't only mean blessed, fortunate, approved. It also means happy. The problem with this, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm, I'm very much borrowing an idea here. I'm really culminating with some things I've read. There's a problem by using the word happy here because of what we hear in our English mind. When we hear the word happy, it makes us think a certain thought. And so this is a good word, but it needs a little bit more defined. What does Jesus say? So stay with me. Here we go. The idea behind the word blessed means fortunate, approved, or I'm going to say a version of the word happy that is a state of being and not so much a feeling. It's not about a feeling. It's about a state of being. And you're like, okay, Jeff, I'm not really getting what you're saying. You seem kind of excited, but I'm not getting it yet. All right? Blessed means happy. We associate happiness with a feeling, but what Jesus is really saying is they have a happy state of being. Delve a little further. Hang with me. This happiness means they really are in an enviable situation. This is key, whether they ever feel it or not. Jesus is always stepping back, looking at these groups of people, this group of people, and saying, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek and who hunger and thirst, who are persecuted. Those are the blessed people. They're really in an enviable place. They probably don't know they're in an enviable place. They may not feel it, and the world may look at them and go, that is not an enviable place. Jesus, who is the authority, who knows all things, says, oh, believe me, they are in the enviable place. They're blessed. They're in the happy place. Most of us, we hear the word happy, I'm guilty of this. We have happiness that is so circumstantial. I mean, it can change bad weather, ball team loses, bad doctor's report, uh, finances, finances go in the red. Man, we're not happy anymore. What he's talking about is a state of being that is not always tied to a feeling. It supersedes the feeling. I like how Barclay puts it. It's in your notes, I think. I'll get there in a second. Barclay says, the Beatitudes are not simple statements. They are exclamations. And here's how he translates. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Listen to that. Here Jesus saying, this is what he's saying. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. It's as though Jesus is saying, these really are the most blessed people in the world. One guy, I forget who it was, it kind of led to my thought here, it's in your notes. These really do have the good life. Who has the good life? People that mourn, people that are hungry and thirsty, people that are meek, people that are being persecuted, people that are poor. They really have the good life. And we go, them? <laughs> That's the good life? I don't want any part of those things. Because here's how we think. We think with American minds. We think with human minds. Very temporal. We tend to think that the most blessed people, let's be honest, are very self-confident. Very confident. 
Man, look how they move around the room. Why can't I be like that? They're kind of giddy, lighthearted, not a care in the world. They're powerful. They're wealthy. And they're aggressive. They get their way. They know how to win the day. In the boardroom, they, their, their decision always carries. They're just strong. And they're popular. They have the most followers. Those are the blessed people. And then along comes Jesus. Cuts right through our way of thinking. And here's what he's trying to tell us. The things you are so eager to avoid are absolutely the most important things. They lead to the longest lasting, best kind of life. They lead to the happy situation. They lead to the good life. What you're trying to avoid. I'm going to be honest with you. I want to avoid poor and mourning and persecution. I'm not all about that. And Jesus says, that's the good life. That's where it's at. Why? Christ is eternal this is important. It means he doesn't just see the past. He's already looked to the future, and he sees these people in the future, and he says, I promise, if you would see from my perspective, you know they are the blessed people. They're the happy. They're the fortunate. They're, the, they're, they're fortunate because they're the approved ones. Will you believe your own perceptions, or, or will you believe the words of Christ? I love the song today. You say, I am, and then the lyrics. doesn't matter what I feel. You say, the Lord says, these are the blessed people. I got to tell you, one quick word of testimony. 1979, best day of my life. Do you know that the best day of my life, just before it became the best day of my life, probably about 9 o'clock on a Wednesday night, most of that day was the worst day of my life. It was awful. felt terrible. Started feeling bad Monday night, felt horrible Tuesday, got worse Tuesday night, felt bad all day long, and felt horrible all Wednesday through the service. And then it became the best day of my life. Jesus says, that's the happy place. Second thought this morning is not only what does the meaning of the word blessed, but we need to look at the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Hold your spot, if you would. Flip over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we will see Luke's version, a condensed version of some of the Beatitudes. Luke chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead quick. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now here's Luke's version. Luke 6 verse 20. And he, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, now watch, imagine we're not teaching through Matthew. Imagine we're teaching through Luke, and this is what we read. And this is Jesus' words, so taste them. Blessed are you who are poor. Okay. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. You that are really sad in this life, it's okay. You shall laugh. You who are poor now, it's going to be good for you in the next life. Why did I have us turn to Luke? Because a lot of people have read Luke's version and also read Matthew's version, and they stop at just that. Blessed are you who are poor. And they associate that Jesus is talking about financial poverty. And some people literally read the Bible, they read the New Testament, and they think there's a special blessing on poor people. Some even think poor people are blessed above wealthy people because they're humble. I'm going to promise you, some of the most arrogant, prideful people in the world are poor people. 
And there are some of the wealthiest people that really are humble. And so just having no money does not give you a special blessing. Jesus is not talking about finances as we go back to Matthew chapter 5. He is not talking about being financially poor. So what this has done, some people have read that, blessed are the poor, and they don't apply it to in spirit. And some, now by the way, I, I want to applaud these people having faith in the Bible and having the courage and the willingness to give up things. But some have read their Bible and they hear blessed are the poor and they had resources and wealth and they went and gave it away. Why? Because I want to be in the blessed group. I want special blessings on my life. I want to earn God's favor. I want to be spiritual. And apparently God's against money, and I have it, and so I need to give it away. And they, I guess they curse other people by giving, here, you take the money. I want to be spiritual and have blessings. You get the curse. Uh, wrong way of looking at it. Now, let's be honest. Material wealth really does present some serious issues, problems, obstacles to living a surrendered life to Christ. It really does. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It is really, really hard. Right, Jeff, it's because money's evil. It says that in the book of Timothy. No, it doesn't. The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Money's not bad. Money's not evil. Jesus isn't talking about financial poverty. He's not saying go out and give all your money away to receive a blessing. MacArthur writes the following. So I want to make that clear. He's not calling for material poverty in the Beatitudes. MacArthur writes the following, quote, hear this. No New Testament believer is condemned for being rich. Nicodemus, the Roman centurion of Luke 7, Joseph of Arimathea, and Philemon were all wealthy and faithful, wealthy and faithful. He continues. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1.26 where Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble are called to Christ, not many of them. MacArthur says that not many mighty, not many noble are called is not because they are rejected due to their positions or possessions. You're not getting in. You have money, you have a high position, you're powerful, forget it, you're not again. That is not the problem. He's correct. He says the following. It's because so many of them trust only in those things. Not many mighty are called, not many noble are called. Why? Because they're trusting their might and their power and their position and their wealth. Not many of them are called. John MacArthur used a quote having to do with the New Testament believers. I want to go further than that. I want to propose to you, if you're, some of you are like me in, your old, in the Old Testament reading right now. Job is one of the most wealthy people of his time. Abraham was extremely wealthy. You want to talk about extremely wealthy, I want you to study, when you get there, David and Solomon. And when you get there, get your Google out and, and pull up the price of gold when you find out how much David is giving to the temple, pull up the price of gold, run it by the ounces, run it by 16 ounces, figure out how much a talent is, 75 to 100 pounds. Here's what you'll find. David was a billionaire, not millionaire, a billionaire who gave billions of dollars worth of things to the Lord's cause and to the building of the temple. A billionaire, multi, 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 multi-billionaire who gave billions to the cause of Christ. And Solomon got more than him. 
And you won't find more poor in spirit people in the Old Testament than David, a man after God's own heart. So God's not against wealthy people. It's not a sin to be wealthy. So I want to make that really clear. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So now that we've established that, here we go. What does this mean? First, I need to take the word poor. Hang with me. I just said that Jesus is, the, the, the application here is not about material poverty, but he's using a word that we always apply to material poverty. Now, hang with me. Here's what, here's, here's what the word poor means. There is a kind of poverty that has very, very little. You understand what I'm saying? Very little. I mean, barely enough for a week. And if it's really bad, I mean barely enough for a couple of days. We've got enough for a couple of days. After that, we're out. That is not this word. There's a very specific word here. It's worse than what I just said. Again, Barton from Barclay, he says of this word for poor, quote, it describes absolute and abject poverty. Absolute and abject poverty. He continues and says, the root meaning of the word for poor is connected to the idea to crouch, to cower. This means this person's poverty is beating them down. They are low. It actually even has to do with the idea of a beggar. They're so beat down by their poverty, they're crouching, cowering. They don't even want to make eye contact as they're asking someone to give them a handout. He continues and says that the word describes the man, this is key, who has nothing at all. This is not a person, we got just enough. When we run out, man, we've maybe four or five days left. That's none of us in here, by the way, to do up to my knowledge, Right? You got enough to live in your refrigerator to live for a while. And if that's not enough, you got enough in the pantry. And oh, yeah, there's that freezer, right? Remember the freezer. You've got plenty. If you don't, you have resources to go to. You could contact us. You, you'll get something to eat. These people, what we're using here, this word is so poor, they have nothing at all. This is the kind of person, if you were to say, hey, listen, hold on, buddy. Let me get this straight. What if you, like, pulled all your resources and used all your avenues? What could you come up with? What do you have? Here's how he would answer. Well, if you'll give me a piece of bread, that piece of bread would represent the sum total of my wealth. That's it. And I'm going to have to eat that. And then I'll have nothing again. So, Jeff, is this about money? No, I'm using this concept when Jesus is saying the poor in spirit, this is a person whose attitude is, I have, I have nothing. I have nothing. Not like a little, I have nothing. And then J.C. Ryle adds the following. What's Jesus talking about, poor in spirit? So now I want you to start checking yourself. He says he means the humble and lowly-minded and self abased he means those that's just you know where we're going it's not that complicated to understand what this means the hard part of this is putting it into the life he means jesus means those who are deeply convinced of their own sinfulness in god's sight in god's sight the, the poor in spirit is deeply convinced 
of their own sinfulness. When they're looking at their, themselves in God's sight and they're evaluating how much righteousness, how many spiritual resources do I have? I have nothing. I have nothing. Jesus says that is the blessed person. That's the person that's in a happy position. That's the person that has the good life. Is that you? Is that you? Bark Ryle continues, you remember the Laodicean church? How they thought of themselves. Life's good, got a lot of money. They were not cold on God. They sure weren't hot for God. They're more like those I said earlier. God, money, we love our money a little more than God. Ryle says of the people that are poor in spirit, he says, they are not, their mentality, they are not rich and increased with goods. They do not fancy that they need nothing. They regard themselves as wretched. Have you ever been here? I am wretched, I am miserable, I am poor, I am blind, and naked. That's how this person sees themselves before. God, some people may think I know some things. I know nothing. I've, I've seen nothing. God, to be in your presence, you have to be robed in righteousness. I have no clothing. I am totally naked. These people look up to me. I am wretched and miserable. I am poor. I have nothing. You ever looked at yourself like that? Here's the fact. The opposite of this person in verse number three is this person. Watch. And I'm going to sound like every preacher across Anderson County this morning. Here's, here's a lot of people. By the way, this is the group that's in this room this morning that I said thinks they're saved. And they're not. They may be mistaking some Bible knowledge for a relationship with the Lord and spiritual life. Here's their mentality. Now, it's, it's, it's subtle. It's below the surface. But it is there. The opposite of the poor in spirit is the self-confident person who really, truly, down deep, believes, you've heard it, their good will outweigh their bad. Somebody sitting here this morning, right now, if I were to ask you, and you were to be totally honest between you and the Lord, I mean in your heart of hearts, I mean where you're honest with yourself. I want you to go there right now. I want everybody to go there. In your deepest part of your heart where you're totally honest with yourself and where you don't just say things because you ought to say them, there are people here this morning who have a mentality that when I stand before the Lord, he will let me into heaven because my good will outweigh my bad. I'm basically a good person. I'm better than other people. You are not poor in spirit. You are on your way to hell. You will go to hell with that mentality. You can never be saved with that mindset. And I realize there's probably some folks here right now, and this is where you're thinking, like, Jeff, I'm just going to be honest. You said go to the heart, the honest place. I'm better than other people. Look at me. I'm smarter. I'm wealthier, I have more powerful, I have more power, I'm, I'm more charismatic, I'm more winsome, better looking, I can pretend, but these are the facts. I've done more good things, I don't talk like them, I don't do these, I'm a good neighbor, I'm good at work, I go to church, I give a lot of money, check the records. You don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. You have no chance to get saved. There is only one way to become humble. And you may be thinking, tell me. Because right now I'm having a real struggle. These are the facts. I'm better than everybody around me, or at least most. And the ones who are better than me, I know they're going to heaven too. You're going to have to do two things. Listen. 
Number one, stop comparing yourself with everybody else. You better stop. Number two, the only way to, to gain true humility is to believe what God says. I know I'm, here, I'm preaching a very simple message. Those of you who've been in church all your life, you're going to chalk this up. Boy, that was just a basic, simple, seemed very repetitive. The only way a person can become poor in spirit because we're not naturally there, at some point in your life, you're going to have to say, God, I think this, I feel this, I've done this for a long time, I have this system of thought that you're watching it and you're going to let me in. You kind of have to because of the things I've done, the kind of person I am. You better hit a point in life where you listen to what God says about you and what he says wins the day more than what you say and you defeat what you believe because of what he says. Here's what he says. You're like, okay, say it. What does God say? He says, we are all sinners, born in sin, with a nature, yes, I'm talking about you. You were born in sin. You have a nature that is attracted to sin. You're not just attracted to it. You love it, and you have a long, 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 long track record of sinful actions. That's you. God says you're a sinner with a sin nature. You love sin, and that's the reason you have all these acts of sin. In your heart and in your externals, it's in your words, it's in the things you do, it's in all the things you don't do, there's a reason you are a sinner to the core. That's what God says. And the poor in spirit hears God and believes him. They agree with God. This person sees themselves, literally if I could use this word, God, I've heard you. I am spiritually bankrupt apart from your mercies and your grace. So if I'm like that man, what do you have? Well, if you give me a piece of bread, that bread is the sum total of my wealth. Here's this person. God, I'm in trouble. I'm going to stand before you one day, and I have nothing to give you. The sum total of my wealth spiritually is if you will give me some mercy and some grace. That's all I have because I have nothing of myself. This person realizes if they were to take all their virtues, collect all the things, kind of poll everybody and maybe believe everybody who tells them how good a person they are, put it all together and pile it up on the scale of justice before God, they know this, what they put on there, their virtues will be less than dust on the scale. Less than dust on the scale. In fact, it will count against them because they are trusting it and it's obnoxious in God's sight to be trusting your goodness when he knows all the wickedness from you. Kind of like a bottle of water. Man, that's good water, but if I were to pour this bottle of water from a sewage, a used old sewage pipe that we dig up out here, and we put that in your mouth, hey, I got some water, going to pour you some water. You're like, I don't want that water once it's passed through this nastiness. All of our good works is coming from a filthy heart of corruption and a filthy body, a filthy life. And you can't be saved until you come to the point like, God, I've, I've got nothing. Psalm 51. I'm going to very quickly hit two passages, and then I'll be done. I'm not going to make long comments. Psalm 51. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jeff, what about the song we sung earlier, and what about a Christians? By the way, I know some are thinking this, right? Because you're good Christians, you're, you're good at your Bible, and you think right. And maybe someone's thinking, how does this poor in spirit relate with our identity in Christ and, and knowing who we are? And that's, this, this isn't us anymore. Listen to me. This being poor in spirit precedes our salvation, but it continues to be our view of ourselves. Here's the key phrase, apart from God. 
Before you can get saved, you have to see yourself as bankrupt in spiritual poverty, in need of anything that God will give you. And that's your view of yourself. And that view continues through this life. Now, you have tremendous confidence in God and everything that he says about you is true. And you hold to that, but you know that that is only you in Christ. You by yourself, even after all these years walking with the Lord, you will still go back into your old sinful ways. You have no chance on your own. So this view still permeates a Christian's belief of themselves. Our confidence is never in us. We have great confidence in God and what he says about Christ in us. Psalm 51, David. Main thing, I just want you to hear his heart. I'm not going to make a lot of comment. Just look at it, and have you ever done this? Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. Lord, I'm going to need your steadfast love. You're tested, proven, because I've tested it. According to your abundant mercy. I know you have a lot of it. I need a lot of it. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. I want you to keep seeing David over and over. He wants these things gone. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Transgressions, he's saying, Lord, I know where your line is and I just trample over your line. I did it on purpose. He had just committed murder because he had committed adultery against the man that he killed. He got his wife pregnant. Here he's finally getting clean with God. Have mercy according to your abundant mercy. Please blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Have you ever been there? Or you just play a game. This really leads into next week's lesson on day that mourn. Verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Oh, I know me. It's always there. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You've seen it all. I know my transgressions. You know it even more because you've seen it all. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, if you send me to hell, you will be right to do so. I fit the bill. I am guilty. Verse 5. Behold. He's talking to God. He's not just making a show for us. Behold. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying his mother was sinning when she, com- when she conceived him. What he's saying is, I was brought forth in iniquity. Oh, look, got a little baby boy. Oh, number eight. What you going to call him? Let's call him David. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, but even before that, in sin did my mother conceive. I was conceived in sin. Behold, you delight. Now, here he's getting honest with God. God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You want me to be honest? You see down here, so you know if I really believe this about myself, or if I'm just going to play a little game for the Christians down there at the church who say we need to be poor in spirit, and so I like like I'm poor in spirit. But on the inside, I'm really proud and arrogant, and God will never know. No, David knows. You see my heart, but David's heart's broke. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. God, that hyssop branch that has those leaves that is dipped in the blood of the animal sacrifice, God, it's going to take some blood to make up for my sin. Purge me, clean me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Uh Uh-oh, now we're turning. Here we go. Here's some hope. If you'll purge me with hyssop, hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This is a man under deep conviction. This is a man that is poor in spirit. 
Hide your face. Honestly, it's almost as though David could say, God, God don't, don't, look at, don't, don't look at that. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And God, if you did all of that, I still have a huge problem. I need number, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Gonna write this down. I'm gonna propose that the most blessed people are the people who realize they have no spiritual resources and they let that poverty and bankruptcy cause them to run to God like David did and beg God, God, I have nothing. I'm gonna need you to give me some righteousness. Would you please give me the righteousness of Christ? I have one more quote, and again, it's from MacArthur. One little line. He writes the following. The door into Christ's kingdom is low. And no one who stands tall will ever go through it. The door to Christ's kingdom is low. And no one who ever stands tall will go through it. Mac Tester used to talk about how this belief system and this idea that I'm preaching today, it'll, guys, it'll really take the strut out of Christianity. Sometimes we really strut our stuff. And we really get condemning and judgmental because we're better than, right? We got saved and God's been working in our life. Not this men mentality here. It excludes those thoughts. I said I have one more place, and so we'll close with Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Just a few verses. Again from Christ. What we've been looking at this morning, please listen to me. This is not a call to give all your money away and go be poor. This is not a call to beat yourself up. Some people literally have physically harmed themselves. I've seen people take whips and things, trying to replicate a cat of nine tails, and just lashing their back, trying to be like Christ, be beaten like This is not that message. You need to be poor in spirit. Go around, beat yourself up, give all your money away. I want to promise, if you do those things, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be proud about the things you did. I beat myself up and I gave all the money. And then you're going to turn it on everybody else. Why isn't everybody else doing what I'm doing? Look what I've done. They should be doing this too. Stop it. This is a call. In fact, I'm going to invite you to do it even right now. This is a call before God to acknowledge, to cry out from your soul to God. God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I've had a wrong mentality. I have no righteousness. But I am pleading that the death of Christ on the cross was enough for me. And I'm asking you to give me his righteousness. I mean, you can do this right now as we speak. Luke chapter 18, verse number 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So they trusted inside of themselves, but they also, who you trust? I'm trusting me. Why? Because I'm righteous. So Jesus is in a group of people that has that mentality. What does he do? He tells this parable. I, Jesus is really bold because I'm sure they sat there, I think he's told that story about us. Oh, I'm quite confident. He does. Jesus wouldn't go out of his way to target people in his, in his audience, would he? Oh, yeah, he absolutely does. Verse number nine. He told this parable to some 
who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here's how it came out. They treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One a Pharisee, outwardly really, really good, Sabbath, law-keeping, tithing, fasting, praying, all the good things. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, rejected by people, hated by people, traitor against his country, worked for the hated Romans, overcharged people, took advantage of people, embezzled. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, and literally, if you study out verse number 11, what it means is he's basically not just standing by himself, he's talking to himself, though he is going to Invoke God. He's not really talking to God. Verse 11, Jesus says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Here's prayer. Suppose prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners. Unjust, you know the type. Adulterers. God, I've got my suspicions about some of those over there. I think they're in that. Some over there. Or even like this tax collector god i thank you i am not like this tax collector as you know i'm ad-libbing a little verse 12 i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get wow that's a great prayer nice speech verse 13 jesus says but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, God, be merciful. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's Christ's concluding statement. This is key. For everyone, this is a guarantee, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What do you have here? You have a case of a Pharisee. He has a sense of superiority. He has a sense of merit. I'm better than other people. God, you owe me. The man says he is thankful. Listen to me, guys. I'm going to say he really is thankful. He really is thankful. He's not like the adulterers and the unjust and the extortioners and this tax collector. He really is thankful. It's just an arrogant thankfulness. God, I'm thankful that I'm me and not them. It's good to be me. If I had to be anybody in the world, I'd want to be me. I got it. I'm pretty much the best person I know. That's this man. And then you have a tax collector. You read it. Standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I picture, this guy is pitiful. I, in my mind, I'm picturing this man trying not to make a scene, but <laughs> I, I, I ventilate. He's, God, God, just, just tore up. Why? He knows he's not as good as everybody else. Everybody else is better than me. You ever been there? If you're thinking, but Jeff, everybody else is not better than me. Stop comparing yourself to other people and you better start listening to the Lord. This man went to his house justified. God heard his cry. He knows, God, I have nothing. The only thing I have is if you'll give me mercy and grace. I can ask for nothing good. Every moment of grace. Every moment of mercy is more than I deserve. Would you bow your heads just for a moment?
Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Close your eyes. In verse number 14, Jesus gave us a guarantee. I want you to listen. Jesus says, blessed, fortunate, approved, in the happy place, in the best place, are the poor in spirit. And then Jesus gives a guarantee that, this is key, listen, whatever position you take in this life, he will reverse that position in the next life. Say it again. Whatever position you take in this life, he will reverse that position in the next life. If you exalt yourself before God, he will humble you for eternity. He will do it. He has the power. But I promise you, is what Jesus is saying is, if you will humble yourself before him, then he will exalt you in due time. He will keep his promise. You exalt yourself, you will be humbled, but if you'll humble yourself by faith now, believing what God says, Christ will exalt you in due time. So I've got to ask, what's it going to be for you? Our message is titled, God's Unusual Way Up. So maybe one person this morning, I want to talk to you. Maybe you came in thinking you were saved, and you're not because you've been trusting. Your goodness is going to outweigh your bad. You better repent of that. You better change your thinking. Maybe you came in here, you're like, I know I'm not on my way to heaven because of the things I've done. God will not receive me. What Jesus is saying is if you'll just humble yourself, his way up, his way up, and guys, I mean way up, way, way up, is to put yourself down. And I mean way, way down. I mean the bottom. You talk to the Lord. God will listen. This man didn't pray a long prayer. Here's what you tell the Lord right now. God, this message today was about me, Lord. I have no righteousness. I have a lot of sin. Tell Him. Confess. Agree with God. I have nothing, God. I have nothing to offer you. I am spiritually bankrupt. But God, I believe Jesus' death was for me. And God, you said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I've heard that verse. So talk to the Lord, not just about your sin, but put your faith in his promise. God, I believe you that Jesus has righteousness and you'll give it to me and I'm asking for it right now God I have no righteousness I am bankrupt I ask you to give me Christ's riches of righteousness and I receive them I receive your forgiveness your salvation right now would you be merciful to me Father as we pray I commit this group to you. Lord, I pray that we'll be the poorest in spirit people in this county. Lord, let us listen to you. Let us know what you say about us apart from Christ. And let all of us in here this morning go out of here acknowledging we're at the bottom. We're at the bottom. And you don't owe us anything. But we're trusting Christ. And Lord, we believe you give us his righteousness and you raise us up and we become adopted sons and daughters of Christ.
Lord, I pray if there's one who's not done that, God, that you'll convict them and let them not leave today, but that they get that settled, whether it be talking with me. Lord, put that in their heart. Or talking with someone else. Lord, let them get that settled. Give them faith, God, please. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, particularly the ones who've been being sanctified for years. And your holiness and your righteousness has been coming out because you've been working it in their life. And Lord, I pray especially for my brothers and sisters that you've been using to further the kingdom. That God, it will never result in a judgmental attitude, a superior attitude, and an attitude of merit that you owe us, God. Remind us we're just a branch. You're the vine. We do nothing apart from you. It is always your glory. It is always you that is doing it in us. So Lord, let us acknowledge again, fresh, we have nothing. We're bankrupt. All we have is you, but with you, we have everything. We surrender our lives fresh this morning.